185 miles south, a hardcore punk rock podcast. What's up, everyone? Today on the pod, Dan Sant and I are joined by Mike Cheese of Gehenna. What's up, Mike? Hey, how's it going? Nice to talk to you, dude. Um, I'm excited about this one. I think that like, okay, so I did a little bit of homework on you. So we're not going in fully blind. You're born in uh, in Detroit in 73. You moved to San Diego in 1988. And normally like we jump straight into like when people get into punk and hardcore because I don't really give a shit about most backstories. Like I want to know in the context of the music. But I think that like that would put you around age 15 when you move. So like you're kind of a. Uh, a mentally functioning young adult. And I can't think of two cities that would be so different than Detroit and San Diego. Can you kind of like, you know, in your 14, 15 year old mind, like compare the two. Yeah, I was, I was 14 when, when we moved to San Diego and, uh, and the culture shock was pretty drastic. Um, Detroit is a, is a, a relatively um, intense place to live. Uh, but moreover, Detroit sort of has, or at that time in 1988 had sort of a limited amount of access to the coasts where things were happening. Right. So there was, um, there was a lot more likeliness that weirdos were going to stick together. You know, if there was some fucking weird metal dude or some, punk kid or some goth kid or, or skateboarders or whatever, everyone sort of seemed to talk to one another to try and find out, you know, what was going on, what was happening as far as like releases. If you went into a record store, people were kind of communicating and and there was a fairly good chance that there may be some tensions. Um, but it was a little bit different. I think getting to San Diego, there was the culture shock of, of things being so sort of segregated and segregated in a way that I did not really even fathom San Diego being like a military industrial complex town. It was kind of full of, uh, for the most part, conservatives. Right. And so being that it's like a conservative town and people were only really focused to me, at least it seemed people were only really focused on what was cool within their immediate vision their peripherals were kind of blocked. So being like a kid that was into metal and hip hop and skateboarding and, you know, some early punk and hardcore, I felt sort of like a, a an outsider to say the least. Right. And um, I think that the difference of the two worlds was really amplified by my being alone really and not, immediately having friends. Um, but that kind of changed pretty quickly when I met Justin Holbo um, and we started skating and then started talking about music. And uh, then, you know, one thing led to another and he made me into an asshole. <laughs> so did you, did you get into punk and hardcore in Detroit and bring like a nice little record collection with you yeah. to San Diego. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I, I brought, I brought a bunch of records and cassettes and stuff like that with me. 
Um, and I also just kind of kept absorbing as much stuff as I could. Um, music was really, really important to me, uh, like from a young age, right? When, when I was like seven years old in Detroit, I, I had a paper route, you know what I mean? Um, and I didn't make a lot. It was like 25 cents per paper uh, Monday through Saturday, and then a dollar a paper on Sunday. And it equaled out to about 115 or 120 bucks a week, topping out. But at the time, minimum wage was like $3.30 an hour or something like that, right? So I was making double minimum wage when I was like seven years old, you know what I mean? <laughs> so immediately I had money to just drop at Harmony House Records and start buying stuff like, um, I, I mean, you know, not super amazing wild stuff, but stuff like Black Sabbath and Iron Maiden and Judas Priest and then uh, getting into some of the punk and hardcore stuff, um, you know, buying like Eye for an Eye from COC and, and, and getting, you know, the Suicidal Tendencies LP and, you know, you know stuff that, that was from around. And most of yeah. that I was exposed to through uh, like high school radio and college radio. And there was punk shows on 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 all these college radio stations and these high school radio stations. And, and I just was obsessed with them. But I was also obsessed with like rap records and stuff too, <laughs> you know? So I, I just became obsessed with music at an early age, right? The, and it was really this thing of like taping my records, putting the tape in my Walkman, and then getting on my bike at four in the morning to go pick up papers and deliver papers and then listening to that Walkman and listening to like that stuff. We had an extremely okay. similar existence on two different continents because I was completely obsessed by Maiden, hip hop and like a bit more mainstream punk. But when you were in Detroit and you were getting into punk, did you experience like what a hardcore scene is or did that did that happen in san diego it, it happened in san diego for me you know i mean okay. there there was stuff there in detroit but the difference was that like i said it wasn't it wasn't like a um a a, a giant sort of scene and especially you know being 12 13 14 um as i started to get into that stuff more and more you know, when you're 12 years old, you're not going to go to a bar. You know what I mean? You're not going to go. Rarely are you going to get invited to a party to go see a band or anything like that at 12 years old, right? Unless there's some sort of network around. But you'll meet kids at um, record stores and you meet kids at, you know, uh, anywhere that anyone's wearing some kind of shirt that's obscure. You're like, Oh my gosh, what's that? And you want to talk to them about it and, and talk to them about stuff. And you're making tapes for folks. And then you're reading the back of metal forces magazine and, and trading tapes with people in metal forces. And it, it, it really, well, at least I was, I don't know. Uh, but it, it, it becomes this bizarre thing where like the, like, like I said, the, the culture shock of, of having this, weird thing where there was maybe concerts or backyard parties to then there being actual shows and sort of a scene in San Diego 
was really different. And um, it wasn't, I, uh, it wasn't probably until 1990 that I actually got involved with or, or started kind of hanging out with folks a lot in San Diego's hardcore scene. So um, it was probably around 89 or 90 there. Probably so let's, like jump, let's jump into that era, Mike. What is your favorite stuff? Like, so you land in San Diego in 1988. First, well, first, first off, excuse me, what neighborhood do you land in in San Diego? Uh, so in San Diego, we moved to like Del Cerro kind of area or like, like kind of, um, it's, it's near, uh, I, I, like I went to Patrick Henry high school. Um, I went to, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the junior high. I can't remember the junior high is in like San Carlos and, uh, the high school was right there. Like del cerro san carlos kind of border it's just um, basically by san diego state yeah college yeah, area exactly. east county exactly. college area is kind of where i hung out all the time and that off the record that was on college and Home boulevard was kind of everything to me like i i love that place i i you know would jump on the bus and head down there skate to the bus stop jump on the bus head down there almost daily um with anything i could scrounge up and just I was voracious like buy anything I could get my hands on anything I could um but yeah there was that and then there was in El Cajon there was Blue Meanie which was pretty important to me too as well um that was where like I met Norm from like Psychotic Waltz and uh uh my friend Jason who who passed away a couple years ago uh but these guys were just complete absolute music nerds as well right and so they were they they were you know genuinely interested that some fucking weird kid came into the store you know uh with you know like a homemade possessed t-shirt and like a you know a, a pair of shorts and a skateboard you know and kind of long scummy hair and an upside down cross necklace Right. You know. Let's 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 dial into that. Like, what is your favorite stuff in the world? Like in '89 uh, in this era, without a question, it's it's all the you know primitive death metal stuff, all the primitive thrash stuff, all the Brazilian uh, death metal stuff. That that's that's the stuff that was really kind of my my favorite. As far as like punk and hardcore, though, it was really kind of the the crossover stuff, things like, um, like Excel, um, COC, um, in a, in a bizarre way, like negative approach had such a huge impact on me early that like, I, I never lost a love for that band, but I always just kind of didn't know that it wasn't metal. Right. I knew it was punk, but like, John Brandon's voice, even on that NA seven inch and on tied down, it just sounds like a, like a metal or a thrash metal kind of thing to me. Cause it's so raw and harsh. Right. So um, those were all the things that I liked. I, I liked things that had a, a harsher tone to them. Things that were a little more raw and edgy. Um, obviously, uh, you know, the, as far as hip hop goes in that era, um, it was BDP, you know, it was public enemy, LL, all that fun stuff like that. Cool G rap, never, never 
I, I can never say enough good stuff about Cool G Rap. And, and I know that seems odd, but it, it it's um, nothing odd about it, that. It just, it just, yeah, you, you know what I mean, Danny? It, it just sounds so, uh, it's authentic and it's just so scathing and kind of uh, aggressive, right? And, and I mean, you know, touching on what you said earlier about us having similar existences and backgrounds in different areas. I mean, you, you grew up in Manchester, right? And, just outside, and, a place called Warrington. Well, you know, that's, and I mean, that's essentially when you're talking about like Manchester and the suburbs of Manchester, it's, it's really kind of the same thing as Detroit. It's an industrial town. It's a working town. It's a blue collar town, right? And even in the suburbs, it's that same kind of thing. And I mean, you know, the, the reason that like I was drawn to city was because it's the same color as, as the lions, right? It was that, yeah. it was that, that, that like <laughs> sky blue. And I was, I was like, talking about Manchester city, by the way, to people who aren't, aren't clued in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I mean, it, and I mean, if they're not clued in, I, I, I feel for them. My heart breaks for them, <laughs> you know, uh, it's a tragedy. But, uh, you know, it, it really is kind of like one of those things, though, that like grow, growing up in in um, kind of a, a, an environment, a working class kind of environment or a blue collar environment, I think you tend to have um, a, a greater appreciation of the things that like you're hard? doing. Well, you know what's interesting about what you say there, Mike, is like the other thing that is completely echoing on both sides of that and what makes working class kids dive into subculture. And because of the insane amount of like joblessness that was going on and unemployment and things, Absolutely. So yeah. you dive into subculture, you dive into the artistic things of music because that's giving you life in, in an environment that necessarily isn't showing you much else. Yeah, a- a- absolutely, without a question, and and I believe like it's sort of one of those things, you know, when when you really understand what's at stake, you go in thinking this is the most important thing in the world because it might save me. This might be the thing that gets me out of this uh, sort of desolate and kind of hopeless mindset that I see surrounding me, and. You know, I, I think, Danny, you could understand what I'm talking about, the culture shock wise, too. The the idea of San Diego is like kind of like, oh, man, it's cool. Just go to the beach. Fuck it. You know, like yeah. everything is really laid back. And um, and and as far as like going out to to just invest yourself into every single solitary way to make a dollar you can. I think people are sort of conservative and they're like, well, just get a job, one job. Don't worry about it. Go to the beach, relax. It's cool. No big deal. Right. I don't. Yeah, I, I feel like moving to San Diego, there were, um, it is a thing where, yes, it is a much more laid back lifestyle, but I'm sure for you being a, a skater kid coming out of Detroit, Whoa! I can skate 365 days a year now. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean that 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 was definitely um, that was great, you know. Um, but 
I think at that point, it kind of more became specifically a, a mode of transportation and a, and a and a genuine way for me to utilize the the rapid transit system uh, at a at a better rate and uh, get around to where I needed to go. And it also kind of helped me um, introduce myself to a lot of folks because you know you could go to skate spots and hang out and and bump into folks and talk to them about, you know, Oh shit. Um, have you heard this CMW tape or, you know, Oh, this is, you know, you know what I mean? So you're talking about whatever kind of music is. Well, this is probably where you learn more about punk and hardcore, especially what's local there. And, and probably where you meet up with people that then introduce you to the scene. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, like I said, I, I think, I think it was there and it was at off the record on El Cajon Boulevard, um, where I bumped into, uh, it was like Josh, uh, and Greg and all those folks that were in statement, um, and Oscar and, uh, and they were dropping off some flyers, um, for, a statement show that was at Bob's house in Chula Vista. And I was like, Oh, this is great. And I made my way down there. The show didn't happen. Um, Greg was quitting statement and moving to uh, Seattle. Um, Greg, you know, uh, became Greg Anderson. I guess he was Greg Anderson there and didn't really become him. Cause I guess he always <laughs> was him, but uh, I think, you know, uh, but that's the Greg I'm talking about. The Josh I was talking about was Josh Mosh from, uh, from Force Down and all that fun stuff. But they were in this band called Statement. They were dropping off flyers. I was really stoked because I just bought the demo at Off the Record um, just like, uh, I guess, a week or two before or something, maybe two weeks before. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is incredible. I'm so excited to go see these guys. And I went down there and they didn't play. And, uh, that was when I bumped into Rob for the first time. And, uh, and I, I talked to him and I, I'm sure he was like, Oh, cool. Get the fuck away from me, weirdo. But, uh, it, it was then, uh, you know, finding out about like amenity shows that were going on and getting flyers for amenity shows, uh, and then going to amenity shows at, uh, there was a, a, a rock against racism show at uh, San Diego State University. And it was like, this is great. I could just take, you know, the number 11 and I'm going to be there in, you know, 18 minutes or something. Right. And so went to that show. It was nuts. It was fun. I met a bunch of folks um, and then said, hey, do you guys want to go skate or, you know, steal food from a grocery store or something, you know, and again, they looked at me like I was a fucking lunatic, but I sort of like made those connections there and started talking with folks, um, you know, and, and through skating though, definitely that's how I was introduced to more folks within punk and hardcore. Mike, jump into that show a little bit, just cause that's one of your, earlier hardcore shows that you go to, what's the vibe like? How do you feel? How does it make you feel? Uh, et cetera. Um, gosh, what's the vibe like? Uh, so it's, it's, 
in this kind of, I guess, house at San Diego State University. It's not really a house. It's like it's like a house that's that that has, um, sort of like a some like I don't know, like a like a food not bombs thing going on or something like that. You know what I mean? It's like like one of those kind of places that's like a bunch of hippie folks and a bunch of weird punk kids and you know everybody's you know really upset about everything. Uh, for no apparent reason. Uh, and then as far as bands that played, I don't really recall any of the other bands that played besides amenity. Um, I'm, I'm really, I'm trying, trying to remember. I mean, it, it's, it's kind well, of weird. Doesn't matter. I mean, what matters is you remember amenity, right? So how did yeah. they feel when they played and how did you connect with them? Uh, it was fucking insane. I was, I was just blown away. Um, I was skating, uh, probably seven hours earlier. Right. And I was shooting one of my friends that was trying to, you know, <laughs> put together his tape. Right. And, uh, so I was filming that right with this gigantic old video camera that was like, laying around at some point that I decided I was going to use. Um, and so while I was out skating with this thing that was like 60 pounds, like it has a separate battery pack and then it's like the camera and all this stuff. And I had it like kind of packed into this hiking backpack sort of, right. Just cause I couldn't actually carry it and skate safely, but we were filming a bunch of stuff. And then I went to that show and I was filming because I really wanted to like film the amenity set. And I have a copy of the, the set somewhere around here. Um, but it was like, it was just nuts. I was just completely blown away, just completely blown away by how connected the band was to the crowd. Right. Like they were genuinely like the crowd was part of the band and, they were singing along every word and going all nuts. And like the whole room was just moving. Like it looks kind of like the camera's bouncing around on my shoulder, but it's genuinely because the walls were vibrating. The whole room was moving and it was like the floor felt like it was flexing, like at least, you know, a, a full inch up and down the whole time because the whole place was just going nuts. And, um, and it was, it was just, it was massive. It was huge. It was so big to me. I went home that night and I remember rewinding the the tape as soon as I got to my house and watching it start to finish and thinking to myself, like, what was I doing carrying this fucking camera when I could have been fucking going ape shit, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, Do you have any other moments like in these next couple of years that are like formative to you before you decide to like start your own band and like become like a participant in like making music. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think, I think part of it, you know, was that like, I, I was, I was always just obsessed with music and, and like, I, you know, thought Steve Harris was the greatest bass player to ever live. Um, and I was right. It was really weird. 
so I, you know, I got a base at uh, probably, I'm going to say I was maybe 15 when I took a bunch of money that I had saved and I, I bought a bass guitar and I kind of tried to sort of play music, was really interested in trying to form a band. Uh, but the band that I really wanted to form in my mind was this band that was like creator or uh, slayer or possessed or so, stuff like that. I saw creator in Tijuana at Iguana's. Um, I got a chance to see Voivod there. I saw a bunch of, bunch of great like metal shows there. And it was really funny. Cause like, you know, it was, like I said, 15 years old with a fake ID and um, just going to see like, all these fucking bizarre shows. And um, it was really seeing like those metal bands and punk bands sort of finish a set and like break down stuff, put it away and then immediately go over to their merch table and start selling shirts and just talking to everybody. Like there was no, um, like there was no actual separation between the crowd and the band, like the, the, the band needed the crowd, the crowd needed the band. And genuinely, a lot of times you could tell that the band hated the kids in the crowd. Um, <laughs> but it was really important to, to feed off that energy and sort of, and sort of have that sort of, um, that ability to, to kind of express themselves and their maybe love or hatred of, the crowd you know what i mean and 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 it really is kind of one of those things like seeing um you know uh, seeing seeing like dri in tj and it just being like one of the most violent fucked up shows i've ever seen seeing agnostic front and beowulf play in tijuana and it was just like a bloodbath um and just thinking to myself like oh this is fun you know, and yeah. you know, now if I were to see something like that going on, uh, I would definitely, uh, be pretty, um, nervous for the outcome of what was going to happen to some of the folks. Um, but I, I think, you know, some of the stuff like, like seeing bands in VFW halls or, in you know uh like the the alano club on on grape street or uh in tj i was able to actually see um stuff that that i didn't see really so much in the in the san diego hardcore scene um and it was like and i i'm saying that because there was sort of almost two scenes there was a scene that was very conscious of what was going on in the world and had a very uh, political slant to it and then there was a scene of bands that were just fucked up out of control and um the and everything was really violent still in a in a weird way because there was um you know still a lot of like nazi skins showing up at shows and stuff like that um probably not as violent as detroit when i think about it but 
I think it was echoed so much because it was such a vast chasm between those two worlds, right? Like the San Diego straight edge and punk and hardcore scene was so different from the the metal and thrash and crossover scene in, in the fact that it was like they sort of seemed to to be around one another, but they were still so separate, right? I don't know if that makes any sense. No, Maybe. for sure. And like the Gehenna demo is so fascinating to me because it doesn't sound like it could be someone's first band. Like it's a really wild mashup of maybe like that early nineties, like straight edge metal core with like straight up, like the, I don't know what you want to call the first wave of black metal, but like sure. the dark thrones, the Burzums, like that early nineties stuff. And it's like, yeah, I mean, it's well, really like that stuff is really recent still at the time. Like it's not like yeah. it's, it's I mean, sunk but, into people. But that's, you know, like Bathory and Possessed and Sodom and Destruction and Creator, Sarcophago, all that stuff. Um, Sex Trash, th- those were all bands that I was like obsessed with growing up, right? Like like I, I was, like I genuinely thought that like I was going to have a, a fucking death metal band or or something like that for as long as I could have remembered. And then having a hardcore band seemed like it kind of made sense because, you know, th- those were the the folks that will, were willing to tolerate my poor musicianship and my inability to uh, uh, sort of learn how to play an instrument or push myself to, to be more creative than, you know, yelling to where I sound like I'm coughing or something, you know. I mean, I don't, I don't know if I don't know if it it really translates well, but I I think it it that demo sort of has the hindsight of you know Steve being uh, able to have recorded unbroken stuff. He had like sort of an understanding of multi track recording, and he also had like some ideas for things that he liked. And then I think, you know, when I was sort of kind of maybe sharing some stuff music wise with Steve, cause we went to high school together and stuff and I was sharing stuff with Justin and Rich and we were all like really sort of um, collaborative and bringing in all the things that we all sort of kind of enjoyed. Uh, Stephen Haldo pretty much wrote all the music there. Uh, I wrote all the lyrics. Um, I shot down some of the music that they wanted to add that had more melody. Um, Cause you know, melody is, I, I hate it. <laughs> you know, I just, well, it's funny, Mike, because I've been, I'm, I'm really excited that you're on the pod because um you're like the most real person that tons of unreal stuff has happened to. <laughs> and, uh, but this demo, like it, the Gehenna demo, no joke, influenced the band that I did, Palpatine, like big time. You know, oh, um, dude, I love you guys, man. Yeah, but but the um, the thing about the Gehenna demo, like, you, it's interesting. You're saying Justin's bringing in stuff, Steve's bringing in stuff, and then you're, you know basically telling them to filter because the way I've always thought about you is that you're always on the precipice of great things before they become widely known. 
for example, the black metal stuff, for example, um, being steeped in like the knowledge of all the Clevo hardcore stuff. Also, I mean, you knew about Wu Tang Clan literally <laughs> right as Protect Your Net came out. Like uh, you, you knew about them yeah. like the minute that dropped, and you know. Don and I are very grateful <laughs> because I, you know. I got to tell you, there's, there's like the, the, the thing that, that made me so obsessed with music was like what you were just talking about. It was like, it was like, Oh, is that new? Have I heard it yet? Is that going to change my life? Great. I'm going to go for it. And like, and I don't think I was afraid to express like how much I loved something. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that that kind of I, I believe that there's always been a lot of people always have like these these walls that they put up because they're afraid to be ridiculed or afraid to um, sort of commit to things. Right there. I, and I and I think that that because like I happen to be, you know, I mean, I'm not afraid of being made fun of. I don't I don't give a fuck. Like I I mean, I know that anyone that makes fun of me genuinely more than likely I'm not going to encounter them ever again. Right. Like, like really like, or, or I will encounter them again and I'll understand that it was all in good fun and it doesn't really matter. Right. In the bigger scheme of things, but for the most part, right. Like, like there's like uh, for being on the precipice of hip hop stuff, like I just remember obsessively buying like, every single that came out that, that I could and reading just volumes of like rap pages and the source and like, um, you know, bomb hip hop magazine in 4080. And like, it's, it's bizarre. Cause like when I moved to the Bay area, the thing that kind of connected me to folks was I was working and, I started rapping with this this guy that was DJing at the bar and he's like, oh shit, you know my friend from Reno. And it was like, yeah. And this is a guy that in, you know, 1992 or 93, like we were, you know, joking about, you know, like the the, the hip hop stuff that, that other people were afraid to listen to because it was just like, so raw and shitty and you couldn't wear like a button up shirt with polka dots on it and dance around to it. You know, <laughs> like, like it's, you, 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 does that make any sense? I don't know. It, it's like, it wasn't, it wasn't R and B. It wasn't melodic. It wasn't. No, of course. You know but I mean? the, the, the reason I'm, I'm, I'm like talking about just your wide knowledge of things and also being like up on them first is because of what the Gehenna demo is, is that, you know, it obviously San Diego was worshiping, you know, when you look at Unbroken and you look at a few other things, San Diego was definitely influenced by Cleveland, right? So there's, there's Cleveland influence on the Gehenna demo. It's just, it's just in the scene at the time in Steve, in Justin, etc. But then there is the black metal stuff, which, a so, lot of people so like the, are finding stuff, black metal after finding Gehenna. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean the Cleveland stuff. I, I I'll, I'll I'll disagree a little bit there. I think I think the Cleveland stuff, um, 
was genuinely hated by everyone in San Diego at first. Like if you read JFS, like those early issues of JFS, I don't know if you ever saw those zines or like get it straight or any, any of the zines that, that any of those cats put out, like all those Chula Vista dudes just loathed and hated that integrity seven inch when it came out, they just despised it. Now they enjoyed face value for some reason. Um, probably because face value was more acceptable along the lines of traditional hardcore. Right. Um, but integrity was sort of that seven inch specifically was definitely not valued the way it was until, I mean, I, I was obsessed with that shit though. Right. Like I, I like, I printed like integrity shirts in my graphic arts class and stuff. And, uh, and I was obsessed to a point that, that, you know, I, I thought that that seven inch was the best thing ever because it kind of had that, you know, death metal and thrash metal meets hardcore. Right. So it was, it was evil. Yeah. Just, just cruel and vicious sounding, you know what I mean? Um, and I think part of the reason it sounded so cruel and vicious to me was because it had like, uh, a sort of Cro-Mags meets maybe possessed kind of tone to it. Right. Um, and possessed maybe strictly in the vocal delivery, Cro-Mags specifically on the music writing and stuff. Um, and I, for, for that, that Clevo stuff, I definitely don't think like it was widely accepted for a while. And it really took like, it took, I think, those who fear tomorrow to come out for the San Diego folks to kind of embrace integrity, um, in in my opinion, you know. Yeah. And and uh, maybe see them. Right. Well, I mean, and and nobody actually saw integrity until those who fear tomorrow had been out for quite a while, and yeah. the first time they played on the West Coast, they played in. God, I, they played with Downer, and I can't remember who else, um, but it was in L.A. We drove up for that, and then I, I flew up to uh, Sacramento to see him like two days later or whatever. And Rhodes, who played in Gehenna, and Dean had booked the Reno show for them on that tour. Um, Rhodes rode out to see them in like, Milwaukee or, or some, somewhere like that road Greyhound out to see them. And, and, you know, Rhodes and I had been writing letters back and forth and trading tapes, you know, like, like, uh, Oh, Hey, check out this, um, ripping corpse demo. And, you know, he'd be like, Oh, you should hear this, you know, fucking seven inch from this band called last option out here in Phoenix, uh, before he got arrested in Phoenix and then had to move back to Reno or whatever. But, you know, it, it's, it's, um, I, I think, I really think it was like mostly metalhead weirdos that really embraced that stuff first. Um, but I, I think that, 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 that I believe that the Gehenna demo, along with all the Gehenna stuff, kind of tends to be that stuff that, that's like, oh, what do you like? Um, well, it's all right here. It's like really huge sort of drums that sound almost like they're sort of 
like a live hip hop drum kind of samples, right? Like, like in a way they kind of sound like that to me, they sound like live almost jazz drums or something like that. And the guitars, I think should always be detuned and have like a, a really sort of horrific amount of feedback around them. Um, I just, I don't know. That's, uh, I, I would dare to say though, that it was all of us kind of delivering our own take on stuff. And then the editing being all of us kind of arguing and uh, probably whoever had the, the most obnoxious opinion, uh, we went with it, you know? <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you didn't pull like the lo-fi drums out of like the nineties black metal. Cause that's, that's kind of rough. But you one know, thing I want to, one thing I, I wanted think, to talk about with the, didn't have Jeff Forrest, it would have sounded like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Double time really makes drums sound fucking great, man. And and they they just remind me of hip hop drums, you know, like I don't know. For, for sure. One thing I wanted shout to touch to on. Jeff on Forrest. <laughs> Sorry. Shit, God. I was gonna say shout out to Jeff Forrest wig. <laughs> One oh, thing man. I just wanted to touch on with the uh the demo is just kind of like the timelessness of it, because if you think about like Gehenna, you know, demo 94, and then you do like that comp LP that comes out in 98 and a lot of bands, like they run away from their early stuff. You know, they think it doesn't matter how great it is. It's like, they kind of bury it. Cause they think whatever they did next is like the, is better or the best. And like sure. when you put out this comp LP, like you put the demo tracks first, I love that you're not like yeah. hiding from it. You're still like, this stuff's great. This is our band. We're not trying to like get past it. And I think it really adds to it, like a timelessness of it. Yeah. So I, I think that when you assemble things, unless they're a mixtape, um, when you assemble things, they should be in chronological order. Right. And, and I think like the, the, the downfall of a lot of bands is that they ignore the, uh, sort of, in my opinion, proper way to document things, right? Like I don't like books that are out of sequence. I don't like stories that are out of sequence so much. I really don't enjoy uh, movies that are out of sequence very much. Um, and I think that although it can be fun to sort of shuffle things, um, for lack of a better word, that's the only word that comes to mind as we're kind of in an age where everything is shuffled anyways, because no one listens to a record from start to finish anymore. Um, I, I think it was really important at the time to document things in that um, sort of chronological order, right? And and I also think, too, that it, it actually shows growth and progress of a band. Right. Like I, I think if a band is growing and progressing and, and doing stuff that they're um, that that they're more excited about, you know, why not save the best for last? Right. You know, I mean, no, that's fair. You know? Yeah. Before before we jump to that, the Spotify skip everything culture, you know, make it through the record. <laughs> Mike, can you give your general thoughts of like hardcore in like the mid 90s and what bands oh. like stood out to you? Like kind of an overview. So, so Danny mentioned my favorite hardcore band, Wu-Tang Clan. Um, uh, I was really big into Mob Deep, uh, loved uh, Black Moon, 
Uh, let me think about hardcore bands from the nineties that, that really stood out for me. And, um, uh, it's, it's going to be born against Rorschach. Um, obviously unbroken had a, a connection with them as friends. Uh, other other bands that that really kind of rung my bell in the '90s would probably be like, um, I mean, Morbid Angel. <laughs> um, I'm I'm really like I'm I'm kind of at a loss because there was so much hardcore that was coming out, and there's there's so much that I was absorbing and and buying and and you know really obsessing over. It was the rare stuff like the uh, like the Rorschach records or the, or the, um, Econochrist records that seemed to, to strike me as something that, that I, that I sort of, um, kind of aligned myself with or, or, or really understood. And I think it was because those records sort of have a harsher sound to them and they weren't getting sort of cleaned up. Um, the, the other stuff is, is like, I mean, Citizen's Arrest, just, I was blown away by Light in the Darkness. Um, I, like, Colossus is one of my favorite LPs of all time. Um, I think, I think Daryl has one of the raddest voices. And, you know, Yannick's such a great guitar player. And, and you know, uh, they, they, they really made some brilliant records. But I, I think there was stuff, you know, like the, like the Doom records were, were great. Um, I, it's it's hard really for me to pinpoint great hardcore from the nineties. Cause I, I, I don't believe there was much of any. I think that's just interesting. You pinpointing some stuff. I think it gives like a lot of insight. How about like the overall, like seriousness of it? And I don't know, like some of the banality of it. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's, I mean, I, I think maybe, maybe even that's some of the stuff that, that, that helped me to, or maybe, drew me towards some of those other bands. Um, you know, bands like, like gasp or spaz or even like no comment, all those bands had this, um, sort of no less was like that too. They had these, these, um, sort of kind of less, um, less finality with, what they were saying while there was conviction and it was serious and it really meant something and it, and it genuinely meant something to the, the band that was creating it. There was also a, a, a way to laugh about something that, that was maybe not, not related directly. Right. You know what I mean? And, um, and, and I think, I think kind of like that, that um, really, overly serious um inability to uh to 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 be flexible kind of it it caused this sort of strange culture where people were shutting each other out and forcing each other to not listen to one another or listen to what was being said by someone who was not sort of within the scene, right? Somebody, if, if you weren't like a uh, 
top dog, if you weren't like somebody that everyone loved, then it was like, fuck you, shut up. Your opinion doesn't count. Right. And, and, you know, you saw it with, with women that were trying to express their viewpoints or with, you know, homosexuals that were trying to express their viewpoints or people of color that were trying to express their viewpoints in punk and hardcore at the time were sort of clowned and, and dismissed. And I think that there was maybe a, a, a little bit less of that as hardcore moved away from the sort of suburban straight edge kind of thing and moved out into the punk and weirdo noisy kind of realms. Does that, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that course. sounds like I'm being judgmental as well. Too, <laughs> no, 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 no. I want to talk. I just want to wrap up Gehenna, which is weird because we're just starting, but I want to know how you feel about the, like the evolution of the band. There's this, I guess it's a multi-tiered question. The evolution of the band, as well as your outlook on doing like EP versus LP, and then also why everything is so sporadic. So I, I think Gehenna evolved in a in a very natural way for me. Um, it it kind of was finding the right folks to continue to make music with long term, right? And it was about finding folks that understood that the editing process is probably the most important part of the publishing process, right? You can't really just kind of put out everything that comes to mind, right? If you put out every single thing that you're thinking of all the time, if you're constantly broadcasting every note of music, it loses um, authenticity. It loses that that bit of care that that I think happens when you invest your time wisely into it. So that was kind of one of the things that I, I really enjoyed uh, about meeting, you know, Mickey and meeting Dean, right? Like these, these two weirdos were equally as batshit crazy as I was, but they also had this, um, this sort of obsessive dedication to things having to be right to them, right? Or right to us, the right sound for us, the right feel for us. So so as the band progressed and we wrote and released stuff, there was stuff that we would write and record and sit and listen to. And after a week, we'd call and talk to each other. And it was like, no, not yet. And then a month would pass and it was like, no, not yet. And then sometimes it'd be three, four, five months, and we'd be like, eh, let's just go ahead and change that. That's going to be a different project, right? So it became something else. And at one point, the the the, the frustrations of, of not having uh, something to commit to all the way through were alleviated by all of us being able to just go ahead and move kind of out and record our own bands right and we all kind of played in each other's bands but we all did all the things that we wanted to do and and still do all the things that we kind of want to do uh to make music we hadn't heard right so like the sangral record right sangral had an lp out technically before gehenna did right um because our you know i i don't know if we just didn't have an lp out before sangral did but 
um, you know, Sangral was Rhodes' kind of vision of of black metal, right? Um, and then Dean, you know, did Witchlord. We did MFTS. We did um, Gravehill. Um, we did. Uh, I'm trying. There was Guria. There's uh, Bad Larrys. There's there's. I'm I I could I I'm kind of having trouble. <laughs> Wrap, wrapping it up right now, but there's there's so many different bands that 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 we did that were like okay that is a Gehenna riff that's maybe not a Gehenna riff that is something that's worked for us that is a lyric that could work here that isn't a lyric that could work here and you know that editing process led us to um, becoming more comfortable making music for each other and like sending each other tapes of stuff and really just being completely obsessed with that kind of thing. Um, and it happened that way for a long time. Uh, and discrete doll band worked out for a long time for, for Rhodes and Dean. Um, and then, you know, I, I think all of us living in different areas too, it made more sense for us to kind of take these breaks and, and these pauses so we could record the music we wanted to hear. Uh, but it also kind of comes back down to us contributing equally to make something that, that we feel is an authentic representation of, of, you know, what we are. Yeah. And And I think, I think you going on with like, you know, saying that you found Dean and you found Mike Rhodes, like that these like, you know, people from another scene, which you, kind of sort of moved there for a bit right but it's more like you found these musical brethren and you were able to do a a ton of different projects with but the thing is like it's touching on you know what you just listed as a bunch of your favorite bands and records from the 90s because you're all outliers almost like disgusted by what would be the typical big shows and the big things and you you want to get in the dirt and the blood and the guts of like the stuff that's on the very fringe of what this is, but it's still hardcore because it's still community. You're still playing at hardcore shows and stuff like that, you know? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and definitely it it really is like kind of, you know, there, there seem to be folks that, that in, in punk and hardcore that, that, that completely, um, understood that right and and they were not really kind of in one sort of small um cross-section of hardcore but people that were kind of sporadically living in different areas and living these same weird fucked up lives well that's Um, why that's why like earlier i said like i'm really excited to have you on the pod because I know you to be a very real person that tons of unreal, (laughs) ridiculous, amazing stuff has happened to. And then some even more unreal, ridiculous stories about art. And I think we should dive into a little bit of that too, because that that's always so fun. So how did you become known as Mike cheese? Uh, Get it straight. Issue number one. Uh, was published by Dan Deegan and some guys and they were talking about their uh, genuine love for uh, veganism and all that fun stuff 
And, uh, and I was like, dude, like, what the fuck? I, as I, you know, in my 16 year old brain, writing these guys a letter to tell them that they were fucking idiots seemed like a great idea. Um, and it was, uh, but I signed the shit, Mike cheeseburger, uh, and, uh, like kind of, you know, clowning these dudes. Um, and then I met Dan Deegan at a show, uh, an amenity show at Bob's house in Chula Vista. And we were shooting the bull and, and he was, you know, um, he, he was, he was like, he was like, Hey man, um, you, you know, that was all like kind of a joke. Right. And I was like, no, I, I, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. And he's like, Oh, all that stuff was kind of a joke. Like I'm not that vegetarian. And I was like, Oh, great. So now I understand sarcasm actually is, is quite important. Uh, so what are you listening to right now? And then uh, that was when Dan Deegan said, well, I just recorded backups on uh, this record for this band called Infest and uh, blah, blah, blah. I went, oh, better go find some Infest records. Um, and it took a minute and I found uh, the uh, that the second Infest 7-inch, the one with uh, Fetch the Pliers and In3s and all that stuff, the Mankind 7-inch, I guess is what it's known as. Uh, but that that record kind of really shaped a lot of um, what was going on in my head as well. Uh, I, it didn't ha- that record didn't have anything to do with me being known as Mike Cheese, but um, <laughs> but it it's, uh, it it, it kind of does because it's me meeting Dan Deegan, who then found out that I was vegetarian. It was like, why did you call yourself Mike Cheeseburger? Because like, it made you mad, right? <laughs> yeah, well, that's a fun fact, dude. And here's another fun fact. I heard that there was almost never a second orange nine millimeter LP because Chaka did a stage dive at Soma. True or false? I don't. I don't. I mean, I think Burn is fucking terrible. Uh, <laughs> orange nine millimeter. Uh, there, there was a. They they played with. Uh, I guess quicksand and sick of it all. Sick of it all. Yeah, that's right. And uh, yeah, Chaka landed on my girlfriend at the time's head. And I think my head and, and I was going to square up with him for a second. And I mean, uh, honestly, like, dude, he, he probably, he probably would have smoked me. I mean, I don't know. It would have been a, a, <laughs> no, a he, probably, he, ages. He, he, he probably, he probably would have smoked me. And I, and I'm saying that just because like, I, I really, I, I have a, I have a pretty sneaking suspicion that uh, the reason those burn records are so bad is because that guy's pretty tough, right? Like, you're you're talking to you're talking to Zach, who thinks that the burn seven inch is the ultimate seven inch of hardcore. You, you, you realize I've listened to this podcast before, right, Dan? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm not hiding from it. The apex oh, of oh, hardcore burn oh. the first seven inch. I'm just baiting you in, man. I'm just, I'm just baiting <laughs> well, you in, Zach. I know. Hey, but I'm not controlled <laughs> by Mike Cheeseburger. What the fuck? <laughs> hey, exactly. <laughs> I was at this show, and I saw Mike grabbing Chaka's tighty whities like, that was sticking out of oh, the... Yeah, I, gra- I grabbed his belt, and I jerked it. It was, it was his belt, actually, and, right? And, and yeah, was- but, you, but the way you grabbed it, you made his undies, like, go really stretched, like, <laughs> as you were pulling him back to yeah. start punching him. Yeah, I yanked him down towards the ground and stuff, 
and I was, I was kind of, um, expressing my, uh, uh, displeasure. Being yeah, yeah, there you go. yeah. And, and, um, and I was kind of explaining it. And, uh, I think at that point I may have been th- like maybe shortly after that I was thrown out. Yeah. And which was probably pretty lucky because I think the entire alleyway crew started looking for you. Yeah, no, no, no. It was really funny too. That That's right. Okay. So I was thrown out, right? Like, but I believe that was the time that, that I was thrown out of the side door from Soma and my head and feet were sort of, uh, Par- uh, I, I guess perpendicular to the doorway. So the, the back of my head totally hit the door jam as I was being thrown out. And I was like kind of laying there outside for a quick second. I was like, oh, fuck. I'm going to go back in there and scrap with these guys. And um, and I kind of I kind of realized like I was not like thrown out like, like outside, but I was thrown into like a like a, a side room or something. <laughs> and I was there and I was just like, wait a second. Like how, how do I get back in from this? And genuinely they just fucking left me sitting in there for, I don't know, probably 35, 40 minutes before someone comes in and goes, okay, you got to go. <laughs> and I was like, what, what is this like Soma's jail? I don't yeah. Know Soma jail. How crazy is that? Like all the baseball stadiums have them. You know, if you get in trouble, yeah. you take the Dodger Stadium jail. I've, I've actually, uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've uh, heard some stories about that. Uh, <laughs> thinking about it now and knowing what I know now, the way it was shelved out and the shelves were empty, that's where like the PA monitors went, and like that's where all the equipment rolled into at the end of every night or whatever. Right? It had to be. It was like just to the left of the stage. Yeah. Right. And it wasn't, there was no bands in there. There wasn't any band equipment in there. It was genuinely an empty room with kind of heavy duty shelves on the wall. And, you know, I guarantee that that's where they rolled like PA speakers and, um, you know, all, all that kind of AV equipment. Um, or, you know, maybe Len party back there. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> well, also, speaking like around this time period um the monster crew jumps eddie castro at an earth crisis show at soul kitchen yeah or they jump a lot of san diego but they focus on eddie because he's a sellout sure and they uh beat eddie up and they like hockey jersey him and like do all that so then you declare a one-man war on the monster crew that takes place over numerous years. Yeah. (laughs) So so it was specifically like Eddie is, you know, I'm always going to love that dude. That, that guy's one of my, one of my fucking favorite people, you know? Um, But, and Eddie and I were really tight in high school. Um, We, we just, you know, we, we shared a, a a mutual uh, enjoyment of uh, petty theft and, um, Uh, just tomfoolery, I guess, general tomfoolery. Um, uh, but Eddie and I kind of, kind of had the, this, this thing where, you know, me and Eddie and Curtis always really looked out for one another. We were always really tight with one another and nothing really like kind of affected any of that. But 
uh, yeah, the, 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 the comedy of that whole thing was that these dudes were so fucking wild and they were, they were buck as fuck and they were totally happy to rat pack Eddie, but like they were scared as shit to just go head up with anybody anywhere. And, um, and I was living in the city of orange at the time. So I was around the, uh, monster crew clowns as they would show up place and I would, places and I would just be like, Oh, it's on site. I'm going to whip your ass, dude. What's up? <laughs> and, and they were always like, wait, what? Well, you can't do that. We're, I don't have my friends here. <laughs> I'd be like, Oh no, totally watch. I'm going to do it. <laughs> no hard feelings. You know, you got an ass whipping coming. That's it. You know? Um, and it, it, it happened, you know, there was some, some not so uh, fun things that happened. Uh, there was a, like the, the, the one at Coos was probably the, the, the nastiest one. Um, yeah. Cause I, I was in the background inhaling that mace that they were macing you with. Right. I think, I think you and Rich came up, right? Was that right? Uh, I, I may have been there with a couple of the swindle dudes because okay. we had friends who lived in South Orange County and we would go to Coos almost every time we went and visited them. Yeah, I, so because I, I I know Rich was there too, and Rich yeah. was pretty he was pretty disappointed altogether. Like he was like he was like, man, my hair's going to smell tomorrow, you know. <laughs> and and I and I just thought that was really funny, like that he was like, my hair's going to smell tomorrow, and I was standing in the front of Coos, like hosing down my face and like washing the blood off my fists, and uh, and and I and everybody was like, yo, dude, you might want to leave. I think you took a chunk of that dude's face out with a punch. Something happened. And I was like, ah, no, I think he just bit his lip or something. It couldn't be that bad. And they're like, no, man, you, you might want to leave. <laughs> and I, I don't know. To, to, to and it me, wasn't just one. You took two, two dudes down. Oh, yeah. I, I smoked a few of them. But the, yeah. the, the, the one that I guess was like that they had to like carry out or something the one that was just gushing blood everywhere that, that like, like you broke a knuckle and shit. I was so mad when, when one of my knuckles was broken, like I was, I was genuinely like twice as angry that his face broke one of my knuckles. Uh, like I was like, you fucking son of a bitch. My hand is broken. Now I'm really fucking you up. And I think that's when things went really wrong. You know, like I think that's when he got hurt pretty bad. Um, but you know, I gotta wasn't, say, wasn't there a, a another time where you were sat outside the showcase, like by yourself, and they all rolled out and and you looking oh, for back. me, boys? <laughs> you said something like looking for me, boys. These no, are no, some no. of the things that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, I was definitely out back, um, behind the showcase, fucking. Cause you, you know, you see the band you want to see and then it just kind of makes sense to, to like vanish or whatever. Um, and like these dudes kind of like came around to go to their car and I was like sitting on the trunk of their car, like, Hey, what's up? <laughs> you know, hi, I'm here. When, when's my funeral? And I think that was the one that, that, uh, the, the common line, uh, that, that I said to them as I'd see them random places was, Hey, when is it? When's my funeral? I thought I was dead. When's my funeral? And they would kind of stammer. And then, you know, I would either 
laugh it off and, and make them feel really bad and make them say, I'm sorry in front of whoever they were with, or I would, you know, generally attack them as well too. But, um, yeah, it was, it was all in, all in good fun, I guess. Right. Mike, there was a, there was a American pro wrestler. His name was, uh, George gray. And I was wondering which of his characters you related with more. Was it Akeem or was it the one man gang? Oh, wow. God, that's crazy. I'm not, I'm not a huge wrestling dude, but, um, when you said one man gang and, and Akeem, I I kind of, Ooh, that's interesting. Wow. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I I don't know, man. I think if I were to identify with a wrestler, it would probably be, um, neither of those guys, but probably maybe more like, uh, maybe more George, the animal steel. Um, and and it well, sounds. I need to see you take your shirt off. No, well, I mean, it sounds really weird, but like he uh, was a like when he wasn't on stage or whatever. Um, he was like a really weird kind of regular ass dude. I'm and, sure. And like you know, people would see him places, and he was like, "Oh, hello, nice to meet you." You know, like <laughs> very boring and 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 genuinely like probably a letdown to everybody that was like, "Oh, this guy's a lunatic," you know. And and I think that I identify with that. I think I think I'm, um, I think one of the reasons we covered Chain of Strength letdown so early on was because I was so used to letting people down, and I'm so totally cool with that. Um, like I, I'm so comfortable being the guy that's like painfully normal um but maybe not you know well that's that's the thing it depends what glint is in your eye at the time but i bet you lots of people meet you having heard this is just a you know just a couple of the stories that you know there's that go on about you there's like we could quote like a hundred you know well (laughs) let's ask one more (laughs) i I think (laughs) before you wrap we should say there's one and i want to shout out to uh Ray Harkin, who does 100 Words or Less. He interviewed oh, yeah. Cheese back Ray. in yeah, like Ray, 2013, and he deserves all the credit in the world for being super, super early hardcore podcaster, one of my influences for sure. Yeah, And uh, it was hilarious because you were on that one, Mike, and he's like, I got to ask you the story about you stabbing someone with a frozen hot dog. Oh, and you're yeah, like, oh, no, no, no. I, have, I have to dispel this rumor. I, I didn't stab someone with a frozen hot dog. I just KO'd someone with a bag of frozen hot dogs. Yeah, like, yeah. So it was like it was a pack of hot dogs that was uh, okay. So in in a really, it's just going to sound so sad and fucking pathetic. Uh, but you know, if you buy hot dogs in bulk or you get hot dogs in bulk, you know, you probably pop them into your freezer so that they last longer, even past the expiration date. And you know, then obviously, you know, you're gonna say to somebody, Hey, you need a pack of hot dogs. I got you. I'll bring, I'll bring you some hot dogs. Don't worry about it. You know? Um, but yeah, pack of hot dogs that's frozen solid from being in a freezer in a, uh, plastic bag, like a plastic shopping bag or whatever, um, essentially works quite a bit like a blackjack. Uh, and, uh, and, and I would never stab anyone with a hot dog. That's just horrible. It's a horrific thing. I, feel like that's despicable and so anyone that says that i stabbed someone with a frozen hot dog you're wrong i'm not that low (laughs) (laughs) all right dan you do the final one and then we'll move on and talk about rorschach 
Um, Gehenna scheduled to play at Gilman. I don't think the whole band can make it. So right. you go up on stage and play. I don't know what music it was that that part has escaped my memory, but you play it was, something. It was, over. it was Project Pat. Okay, yeah, you played Chicken Head by Project Pat while eating. No, no, a it, was, it wasn't Chicken Heads. It was uh, Still Riding Clean by Project oh, Pat. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. And then while eating a sandwich, and then go in the back and debate for your share of the of the door. So, sort of, sort of. I, I uh, so Jensen made it. I didn't make it. Or oh no, I made it. Jensen made it. Uh, a few other folks didn't make it. So the the most authentic delivery of of what Gehenna sounds like when there's only two people at practice um, is one of us eats a burrito and the other one drinks a flask of whiskey and smokes a joint or a blunt depending, you know, depends on what you have. Uh, so I, we played that Jensen had a burrito. I drank and smoked uh, a joint. And uh, then we finished that song which was essentially exactly what finishing Gehenna practice, if only two of us showed up, would look exactly like. And then, um, you know, when it came time for everyone to get paid, we went ahead and figured out the money. And then I was like, hey, um, there's uh, this band from the UK, right, that that, that came kind of a long ways. And uh, I, I, I feel like, we got to get paid because you're trying to pay them some equal share. So give us our bread. Uh, and then we went ahead and made sure those guys got paid that money. We gave them the money. Like I didn't, I didn't want the money to go to fucking 108. Right. <laughs> like genuinely, I was like, dude, look, 108 and all these other fucking bands, like they, they, they have, you know, 700 kids lined up at their merch table They've got all this shit going on. And then you've got, you know, a band from the UK that has barely anything and it's a long way from home and hasn't really made much money on tour. I'm going to go ahead and ask for our share of money and then I'm going to pass it to these dudes. So that's what I did. <laughs> Respect. But, but I don't I don't give a fuck. Like I mean, I'm I'm never I'm never shy about saying, you know, um, you know, fuck you, pay me. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm, I'm always upfront about that. I think a lot of that though has to do with the fact that it, it's, I think, genuinely important to communicate that you're totally comfortable with making sure everyone understands and agrees to the terms of the, the, the commitment, right? Which is kind of like I don't know if you guys know. Um, uh, Greg from Choke, uh, but he 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 does he like books shows in Oakland, and Greg is always super upfront and super honest and just the most reliable raddest guy, right? And and Greg will tell me like like he booked us on a show and, and like told me he's like he's like look after I pay everybody, I think I could get you guys like a hundred bucks, and I was like yeah I, I don't care Greg, I love you man like let's do the show. Fuck the hundred bucks. Like, let's do the show. But Greg, like, genuinely, we finished playing and was like, no, man, I promised you that I could give you 100. This is 100. And I was like, yo, man, like, not a big deal, but 
that's rad, you know, and I, and I think people should kind of stick to their word about that kind of stuff. Right. I feel like if you, you know, like when, when I booked integrity at uh, the soul kitchen in El Cajon, like, yeah. you know, it was, it was like $600 was their guarantee. I had $600 sitting there waiting for them, whether I was going to make $600 or not. I didn't make $600 on the show at all, but they had a $600 guarantee. I made sure I paid them out. Right. Same thing when I booked, you know, like Earth Crisis or Guilt or any other bands that I booked, I, I made that commitment. And there's a lot of promoters that are that are pretty great about that stuff. You know, there's a lot of folks that, you know, genuinely, when they commit to something, they they stand by it. And that's the one thing I really do love about, like, all the older folks in hardcore. They all seem to be really committed to that and really by their word. I mean, like Joe McKay, that dude is just fucking as straight as they come. Like he, he like tells you how much it, that he could go ahead and give you. That's how much you're getting. He's not fucking with you. He, he's going to pay you. He's not going to bullshit you. He's not going to fuck you around. You know what I mean? And, and I will say that you could hear it in his podcast. He hasn't spent any money on uh, good equipment or, um, audio engineering or anything like that. And so Joe, next time you book a show for us, save the money, get a better microphone. No, he's got a pro mic, dude. I love that show. I love that show too, but I got to talk shit. <laughs> Shout out to hardcore. Shout out. This is hardcore podcast. Yeah. I, I, right. And, and, and I genuinely, like I'm saying again, man, I, I love Joe. I think that dude's great, man. And, and he's another guy that, the 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 rap he gets and the stories about that guy are like the they're they're the longest most drawn out horse shit stories about a dude that more than likely said fuck you i'm not gonna let you talk to me that way or fuck you you're not gonna fuck with my friends that way and and they became like and then joe drove a tank through the front of the building you know <laughs> what i mean he's he's the he's he's great though i love that guy yeah it rules fight lasts for hours, each ram battering the other dozens of times. Head to head. All right, we are going head to head. We are putting the first two Rorschach LPs head to head. Remain Sedate came out on Veriform in 1990, and the Protestant LP comes out on War Dance in 1993. Dan, head-to-head, what you taking? This is a really good uh, thing that Mike suggested. Like, this is um, two records that are unbelievably uh, musical for being so brutal, you know? Um, and it, it's listening to these you know i've i've listened to them over time lots of times i have the uh i have remained to date but i don't have the protestant lp um on wax but um i i'm just going to break them down in two different things and then come to my conclusion so remains to date it it like totally has a heavy discharge influence or to me has a heavy discharge influence without it being a db 
uh, record, you know? Um, even just visually, it looks very discharge Um The bass on this recording is, is higher. Um, it's a little bit more hardcore. I won't even say hardcore of its day, but it it definitely is pulling some influence from the, you know, 87 through 89 kind of hardcore with like stops and starts and interesting things that potentially youth crew bands were doing, but they sound extremely different in the, in the world of Rorschach. Um, lots of driving guitar, pick slides, brutal. Uh, Charles's voice is deeper and breathy and definitely uh, probably was an an influence slash you know peer of Dwid. You know, it kind of has it's low it's it's a lot lower and screamier. Um I mean lower and deeper, um, even though it's full on screaming. And then it has those kind of screamy backups throughout the throughout the LP that um that you could then hear like aped by like Ben Reed on the early earth crisis stuff. Um, like backups that are a little bit out of the, out of the um, typical style backups. Um, and then, you know, you go to the Protestant LP to talk about this being a highly influential, influential LP is just, not even scratching the surface because they in- incorporate like those jazzy and off time elements a lot more on this record um, than the previous one. Also just completely influencing bands like Converge, Dillinger Escape Plan, Cave In, etc. that all started to utilize this stuff. I mean, <laughs> this may sound like a little bit of hyperbole, but this is almost like absolutely brutal hardcore played by the mothers of invention, Frank Zappa's band. Like it, there's so much like musicality. There's so much um, musical theory knowledge going into this while it's still being sincerely like some of the most brutal hardcore out there. And um, Charles's voice on this LP is a lot higher in the register, it's a lot of a higher screamy vocal, and it, it sounds so good and so almost like his throat is being ripped apart on on many of the songs. Um, and this, you know, this LP and the first LP go on to influence a lot of probably what would come out on Three One G as well. Um, in in you know, like your Jenny Piccolo's, etc., stuff like that. Um, it's really interesting putting up a band's first and second LPs up against each other when they still, you know, somewhat sound alike, but there is a definite, um, there's a definite like advancement musically. If you are thinking in, in regard to, um, just, technique i suppose um but i i mean this is a very very underrated band this is um one of those ones like that everyone who's seen them um has nothing but like 
just so many superlatives to like talk about. Um, if I'm going to have to pick one, I'm going to go with Remain Sedate. Um, just because, ah, oh God, it's, it's so difficult, but if I'm going with Remain Sedate, it's probably because of like Pavlov's Dogs, like that song is incredible. And then Lightning Strikes Twice. And this is one of the first um, songs where a sample has blown me away even before the song starts. Like it just is, it's just talking about, you know, the Holocaust and it is extremely jarring just to listen to the sample and then the song kicks in and the lyrics are amazing and it has all of these different parts that it goes through like so i'm gonna go with remain sedate i think that this is the underrated band and i'll go more into it when i uh take my piece so i don't spoil my shit but uh i was so stoked you chose this one mike i i think like i listened to this again you know, a lot over the last week, these two records. And I was like, this is the most underrated shit ever. I've always loved one of these. And like, then I, like there was a little bit of guilt that I was feeling too. Like, Jesus, we have a platform. Like, why am I not like pushing this stuff all the time? Because it's out of this world. Mike, what's your take? This LP first LP versus second head to head. So I think there's, I, and, and I, I heard, everything you're saying there. And, and I, I think there's so much authentic value in what you're saying and what Dan's saying about these two records. But I think that my uh, preference is a little bit different and, and it may come from uh, a, a different perspective of why I chose my preference on, on both records. You're looking at a band that's, kind of pushing themselves, right? Remain sedate. You can definitely hear it that they're pushing themselves. And even in, in like, uh, like in lightning strikes, strikes twice, you know, like what, what Danny was saying, man, it sounds like the band's going to implode before that final breakdown, right? They're just going a million miles an hour and just sound like they're going to just fall apart. And then that breakdown comes in and, uh, Charlie says, submit to your higher power. And that, riff comes in that, that Keith plays that's so cruel and vicious and punishing sounding. And it, and it just makes you want to just take a hammer and smash the fuck out of anything in sight. Um, yeah. And, and you know, it's why I don't have hammers around when I listen to this record, but it's also like, there's this, this thing that, that happens when, when you sort of compare the two LPs, Protestant has, so many progressive rock elements to it, right? Which goes back to what Danny says about the Zappa things. And it has all these King Crimson kind of things going on that only makes sense if you understood that, you know, Keith was such a Voivod nerd, right? He was so obsessed with that band. And, and the idea of having those bizarre time signatures and those inverted chords and all of those things that were just... um sort of challenging as a, as a player to, to, to make sound good, but also we're just assembled in a way to have the most unsettling 
and uh, disturbing kind of feeling as you're listening to the record. And that's why I think Protestant is such an incredible record. However, on the first press of each of these records, there's a slight thing about them that puts one over top of the other. Protestant was pressed to go on their tour. And on the first press, it was a white label on both sides. So originally I listened to it on the B side as the first side all the time. And it took until I actually read the matrix to find out the difference from the A and the B side. On the first press of Remain Sedate, there was a sticker on the upper right-hand corner that said file under fuck. So for that reason, I'm taking Remain Sedate. <laughs> That's a great reason. I think that uh, Remain Sedate is like, you know, we fucked around talking about Burn, you know, a minute ago. Who? And this is right there. <laughs> this is like where everything builds up to, right? Like hardcore in its initial incarnation is building to something and is building to the burn seven inch is building to inside out, no spiritual surrender. And it's building to this, like this is so creative and pushing the boundaries while still being like firm footed in straightforward hardcore. They always come back to it and they're like dipping off on these little like tangents. Like you don't hear any power violence in this really. Um, there's actually, well, there is a tad bit on that. I believe the last song on an oppress, like there's, there's a little bit of like crossed out influence there, but it doesn't like seep into this record, but you can right. tell it's there because there's like so much YOLO. Like you can tell these guys are, are into that shit. I think, you know, but, uh, this is just so straightforward. It's so good. And then so like zany over the top at the same time, they do the thing that is like what sets apart a good hardcore band from a great hardcore band. They have like a three minute slow song that fucking kills, you know, the no one dies alone song. And, uh, you know, like Dan was saying, it, it bangs out the start with the Pavlov's dogs, the lightning strikes twice standout track, but just going back to that, no one dies alone. is like, good God. And they kind of, they bury it. It's like late in the record. It like could almost be like the four track, you know, what you're building your whole like album around. Um, this thing bangs, it bangs so hard. In fact, like there's a couple songs on here that like the least standout tracks, I didn't grab the names, but uh, they're just like s- straightforward. And it's like, it adds to the meat kind of how we were just recently talking about the chisel LP, Daniel. Like I love when the backbone of stuff is like straightforward, hardcore, and then everything branches out from that. Like, I don't know if I need my like straightforward, hardcore space for things to fall back onto to make me love them. But like, this has enough of it that I can do. And it pushes the boundaries enough that like it gets me out of my comfort zone, but it, I can always like pull back to that, like the meat and cheese there in the middle. Um, the second record, it goes like too far for me. Um, it's just not the style of hardcore I like that much, but it is like amazing. Listen to this, that it doesn't sound dated. Like if you listen to most LPs from like 93, they sound like they came out in 93 and this just sounds like it could be a modern hardcore band, right? Like it is so ahead of its time. It is so influential. And, you know, Dan kind of name checked like a couple bands that, that pull from this and that's not like my lane at all. So I can just, I guess I'll have to take his uh, word for it, but yeah, this just sounds so modern and so good. And the vocals are a little more shredded, 
Um, the music's a little wilder, but the songs also get longer. So it loses like that, that mainline hardcore vibe that I get on the first one. And uh, yeah, I'm going to remain sedate. This, this is a pretty easy one for me. Although I think that for most people that like modern hardcore Protestant might be the one for them. And again, I just want to echo that like this is so underrated and so like not name checked enough. Like these days, like these two records are awesome and you know, they're also on Spotify. So there's no excuse to not check this stuff out. We'll put some key tracks in the playlist for this episode You can go to 185 miles south.com at the top. There's a playlist link. You can listen to the songs that we talk about because that's what it's about the music. And, uh, yeah, but that's fucked up. 3-0. I thought um, someone was going Protestant for sure. You know, I, I, I got to say, too, like stuff like Minds and Advice and and uh, someone, those those are, I think, what you're talking about when you say the, the straightforward hardcore songs that draw sort of everything back and remain state. And I totally agree with that. I think I think it, it really has that ability to like cross over and it's that pure kind of crossover sound. Um, I... I I kind of I know that I might be beating this to death, but um, I think really one of the things that you mentioned was that the the records are kind of timeless, right? They they sort of stand up to to what the original thing was, but it, it's it's probably really important if you are gonna um, listen to it, listen to listen to the, the band chronologically, listen to the first record. And then, you know, listen to the second record and you'll see the progression of the band and the change and whatnot. But I, I, I think it's, they're, they're both brilliant records, but. I, I think that the listening to it in chronological order makes the most sense, especially because I think that most people, if you like one, you're going to like the other, but I can yeah. definitely see that people could look at these albums as being on completely different islands as well. So, but Good God. I mean, this this stuff is just timeless. I mean, the only if I was gonna say a knock on the first record on Remains to Date, like the out the recording does sound a little bit dated, which is amazing because like the Protestant album for 1993 sounds so bright and so good, and you can hear everything. You know, yeah. I do wonder if like if Remains to Date had like like if they went to fucking Don Fury, like can you imagine if I had the burn seven inch recording on this LP? It's like good God, it's kind of like one of those. It's just like one of those maddening what ifs. Like, what if the breakdown demo had like a good recording, or if they went back and they like re-recorded like the raw deal, like did the Killing Time LP? You know, can you it's imagine like, it at Normandy sound? Yeah, no, exactly. That's what I, that's what I meant to say. If he went to Normandy, the drums would be you know? just fucking barbaric. They'd be so but, nuts. But I think that's what makes Remains to Date sound that as punk as fuck as it is. You know, yeah. uh, almost like. Where I said it has, you know, like a strong discharge influence because it it has that, dare I say it, almost like crust um, production. Absolutely, I think it would have shined. It would have shined through though, even with a bright recording. Yeah, you just know, like, like kind of how tragedy does. Yeah, and the musicianship here is just so good that it's like you almost do want to hear everything. Like there's you know a what? little bit buried in the recording. Yeah. That, but I mean, it, it's funny that we all went three and zero because I don't think the the uh, difference between the LPs. It, obviously, Zach and I, 
the first one's more in our lane of like what we want to listen to entirely. But the Protestant LP is so well done and so like like you say produced perfectly to where it's so listenable in 2021 but also just every song you listen to you're like oh i know that they i know this band loved them because of this and i know this you know it's unbelievably influential and not just within hardcore like they influenced like metal bands and math rock bands and everything like off of that you can tell um and then a, a fun fact is uh, the song Pavlov's Dogs from from Remains to Date is in the film Zero Dark Thirty as uh, being used to torture suspected terrorists. They're like blasting them with that music like super, super loud. Which is yeah. so random, right? Because I <laughs> yeah. think that in real life they played Cannibal Corpse, you know? And it's like, so what, what fucking sick music director was there on that movie that's like, nah, dogs, like slide this one in. Yeah, and I think that's that's kind of like one of those things that kind of shows the 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 general um, cruelty and and viciousness and 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 harshness of that record, right? That in 1993, when that record came out, it was so mind blowing. That in 2007, I guess is that was that Zero Dark Thirty? Maybe it's 2000. I I don't know. Whatever in 2000, whatever they could say, oh, this is going to be shocking to the general public because it's so harsh. And yeah, that's fair. Like even a decade later with so much like, you know, musical evolution of like brutality, they're like, yeah, "Yeah, this thing from 1990 still sounds like the opening track of an LP in 1990 sounds brutal. Yeah. Like when I was a POW, they used to play burn and it was so bad. I was like, it sounds like shit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, man. All right. Let's, Let's wrap. All right, we're doing a One's Gotta Go on the Mighty Schism Records. The year is 1988, and there are four releases. And don't get at me arguing about the fourth release, if it's official or not. So here's what they are. Project X 7-inch, Straight Edge Revenge. The Wide Awake, Connecticut Hardcore 7-inch. Judge, New York Crew 7-inch. And we're also including the Can't Close My Eyes LP reissue from Youth of Today, which came out on Schism and uh, put through Caroline. And Discogs is all wonky. It says that there's a cassette too, but uh, I haven't seen it. I have seen the LP repress that says Schism. So that's what's up. That's what we're doing. Mike, one's got to go. Which one are you losing? So it's kind of tough here. I mean, the the first release on the label is the PX 7-inch, right? And that that record is just monumental. It has the most well-thought-out, most detailed and and uh, musical song that's ever been written by a band cross me um it's brilliant uh genuinely like i'm not kidding i think that song is brilliant because it's so to the point direct and it's just perfect uh that seven inch in general is just flawless then the second release on the label is new york crew another flawless record right the the i mean i've never heard keyboards ruin a song so utterly and completely as they did in warriors. Right. But still the record's perfect. Like it's, it's just incredible. 
Release number three is where I think Porcel probably said, hey, Alex, I got this idea. Youth of Today signed this thing with Caroline. We could probably say that we will license Can't Close My Eyes with bonus tracks to you if you kick us some extra cash. And that probably gave them the money to put out release number four, right? Release number four, Wide Awake, Connecticut Hardcore. I mean, what can I say? The back cover has Bobby Schmurda's hat coming off. Um, it's it's like a it's it's the most metal of the records. Even though it doesn't have the most metal production, it has the most metal uh, sort of writing to the musicality on it. Um, but uh, one's got to go. I gotta say, I get rid of the wide awake, kind of throw it in the air like Bobby Schmurda's hat, and say goodbye. <laughs> Yeah, the the Wide Awake Seven Inch has the boldest song on all this, with uh, the first song "Last Straw" being an early hardcore opus. You know, for being such a youth crew song and just having so many parts, this uh, the sincerity and the intent of this band is runs through this record so hard that it's impossible for me to pick against. So I'm keeping Wide Awake. Now, there's no way. I can lose, can't close my eyes because uh, shout out Darren Pesky. Now respond to your Facebook messages because we want you on the pod, Darren. What's up? And then I can't lose Judge New York crew. It's like, you know, one of the best hardcore sandwiches ever. You know, so mad, so simple in that way that it's like, why did I not think of this? You know, like I to say it's simple is that's like the wrong word to use, but it's just so straightforward and perfect. I don't know. And then uh project X great record, maybe a little LARPy. I'm going to lose it to offend Dan Sant because I hate the cover. And uh, that's that I'm losing project X. Dan, what's your take? Well, that's the wrong take to take. <laughs> um, well, first and foremost, all I have to say is like, I'm as straight as the line that you sniff up your nose. What uh, Dan, an I, I, line. I, Dan, I got I got to tell you, I don't know. I have I cut lines very very accurately. Well, <laughs> the hammer that I draw back that writes my name in hell will not <laughs> allow me will not allow me to get rid of Project X. That's for sure. So Project X is a keeper. Judge New York crew is a keeper. Now, yes, we here's where things might go technical. Can't close my eyes. Already been put out. Obviously, it doesn't have the the two bonus tracks that we've discussed earlier. Um, and I do like the scam of scamming Caroline into paying them for it, which is great. But when shit goes down. And no one's around, just you and him. You got to get rid of Count Close My Eyes Repress. Wow. Yeah, but, 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 but let me say, how about this? This is an early version of doing the greatest thing in hardcore, which is repressing an EP on a superior format, the 12-inch. So it should <laughs> stay just for that. In 1988, repressing a 7-inch is a 12-inch, so it fits into your collection nicely can be uh, alphabetized with all the rest of your great LPs. What's up? That's a really interesting point, but you know what? Because you love that 
and you smited me by getting rid of one of the greatest seven inch covers ever featuring fatty X's being put on hands. I am going to get rid of this because it was repressed on a 12 inch and I prefer the seven inch version. So there goodbye. Can't close my eyes and wide awake stays. I've been always been, I've been always uh, a little personally offended by the drunk in the pit line. You know, so. I mean, well, you, have, you can be drunk in the pit. You just don't have to be hurting my friends. I mean, genuinely though, like, and I, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I totally follow you, like, Zach. I mean, do you not find that record though, to sonically, to be just more interesting than than the other records? Because like, for me, so that's me. I, I think it, yes, sonically, yes. it's so abrasive. Yes, it's perfect, dude. You chose to do schism. It's like this it's so is tough, impossible, right? right? It's four for four. Yeah, you know, it's and, really tough. And yes, if I took it head to head, if I took the Project X seven inch versus the Wide Awake seven inch, I'm taking Project X in a serious world. But in a world where I want to uh, Mike Cheeseburger dance, Ant, right? I'm, yeah. uh, oh. I'm taking Connecticut wide awake so yeah and i mean hey when shit goes down no one's around just you and him no way to win we could turn our backs we don't need to fight we'll go to the bar and get two bud lights yeah yeah there you go no really- when shit goes down no one's around <laughs> just you and him no way he'll win i'll stay outside the back of the showcase theater and i'll say hello boys <laughs> <laughs> all right well this has been great mike thanks so much for doing this and yeah no worries man uh, i i had a lot of fun um you, you know i like like i said i'm i'm a fan i listen to the the podcast and stuff um and i i think you know maybe maybe you know initially when you asked me i, I was i might have come across sounding really weird and defensive when i was like nah i don't want to do that let's do rorschach let's do you know the schism catalog um but like I, I genuinely think that that um those are maybe things that that didn't happen before on the podcast. So I I thought it might work. I think they're they're great and and yeah, anyone we have on, we would love for them to choose. I'm just trying to to be as low impact as I can. So I try to choose things that I think are in people's lane because I don't want to have to ask anyone to do any homework, you know? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Reducing your carbon footprint, right? That's right. My homework carbon footprint. There you go. Uh, but anyway, yeah, thanks so much for doing this, Mike. You've been great. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks.